I admire you, Gospel Tangents. So everyone should should watch everything Rick Bennett has ever produced and donate to him, by the way. How do people donate to you? I don't want to sidetrack us, but how do they donate? Just go to my website. I've, I've, I've actually tangents. upgraded my website. Gospel so. Tangents what? Dot com. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to end the interview yet, but... Go to gospeltangents.com and donate. Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to have part two of our conversation with John DeLynn of Mormon Stories Podcast. We're going to talk about some of the uh, critics that he has, his thoughts on apologists and neo-apologists. What's, what's the difference? So we'll find out more about that. And uh, talk about uh, more of the Swedish rescue and John's studies in uh, Mormon studies. So check out our conversation so because i know you know i used to listen to your podcast all the time um i, I probably started in about 2006 and uh so i was a pretty early listener but and i remember you would say on your podcast that you got uh messages from people emails or whatever that were um that you were a a wolf in sheep's clothing and i know that really bothered you um can you talk about that? I mean, was that a fair yeah. term? I don't know what to say. <laughs> so speaking of fair, uh, one of the first things I did in 2004, 2005 was I joined the fair more back then. Yeah. I joined the fair board and I, you know, I learned about Lou Midgley and Daniel Peterson and all the apologists. And I, I thought, Oh, these are people defending the faith. Like they're worth engaging with. And I was even on their email lists for a while. And, but I also learned about Grant Palmer and I had read an insider's view of Mormon origins. So I was trying to decide how, how aggressive I wanted to be on the podcast. And I remember interviewing Richard Bushman mm -hmm. and I was so grateful that he let me interview him. That was one of my first, you know, along with Greg Prince, that was one of my first really big gets. Right. And, um, it Richard, took me six years to get Richard Bushman. I just want you to know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <hard. laughs> he probably didn't ha love my experience with him and didn't want to do another podcast for a long time. I don't know. but Yes, that's what he told me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd love to hear that story. Um, but here's what happened. So I I wanted to cover like the main – think about the Gospel Topics essays now. I was just really curious how such a believing, intelligent – man dealt with polyandry, dealt with polygamy, dealt with the, you know, um, the book of Abraham dealt with the martyrdom, dealt with the stone in the hat. You know what I mean? So I said, you know, Richard Bushman, would you come on Mormon stories? We'll cover 10 topics. And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. We'll cover 10 topics. So he agreed. So I was thrilled, brought him on and we covered like three topics. And I haven't ever gone back to really listen to the episode. I know he was sick during part of it, coughed a lot. But I'm sure we covered like the first vision and maybe some of the treasure digging stuff. You might remember more than me what we covered on that episode. But I was trying to go kind of chronological. And all I know is, is that after three of the 10 topics, he quit. Well, that was like six hours though, wasn't it? It was a long interview. Yeah, but I was... I was trying to go in depth. I was trying to be substantive. Like we had talking points that were shallow. Like I wanted to cover his story, but then I also wanted to cover 
the topics in enough depth that they would be meaningful. My guess is he wasn't expecting a 10 hour interview. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably. So. Um, so I, you know, I don't hate the guy. I, I, I still really respect him, but he quit. You know, he, he didn't keep his word. He quit three of the 10 topics in, and I was really disappointed in that. You know, I, I didn't, I still loved him. I still, um, you know, brought Claudia Bushman on later to Mormon stories and, and, and had a lot of respect to this day. I have a ton of respect for him, but that was a bummer. And I, I, I was trying to decide, like, do I tell everybody that he quit or do I just kind of awkwardly finesse the ending of, of the series? And I chose the latter. And so I didn't really make a big deal about him quitting. Um, but it was a disappointment because I, I, we can he, tell you were disappointed. I, I will say that. I remember that. But he, but he told me why he quit. He said, when I interview with you, it feels like I'm being stung by bees. And you swat one bee and then another bee stings you. And the way I inter, he didn't say it was too long. He said, I feel like I'm being swatted by bees. And I don't think I was hostile. I, I had, this is before I created StaleDS. I was trying to be a faithful member, but I also believed you should talk directly and openly about the hard stuff. And I wasn't a fan of, of finesse. I wasn't a fan of like soft peddling the hard stuff. And that's what apologists in my view too often did. And so I wanted to go in depth and really ask, how do you stay a member with these really serious problems without finesse? And I felt like he was uncomfortable with the level of scrutiny that I was putting him under, frankly. And, uh, I think that's why he quit. I don't think it was because of the time commitment. Personally, I think he was surprised by the length. I don't think he was probably expecting that length, but I think the reason he quit is because he knew he couldn't really control the message. And I did lose some respect for him at that point, honestly. And, uh, you know, later when he gives that fireside in the basement where he says, you know, um, where he says, uh, you know, the, the, the predominant historical narrative isn't sustainable because it isn't true. But then when it's made public that he says that he backpedals again, I, I don't fault him for managing his political capital within the church. Everybody who's successful has to do that, including Terrell and Fiona Givens and Patrick Mason and Spencer Fluman and others. I get it. I was doing it, but I lost respect because I, I got this really clear sense that it's like, well, what we say privately is going to be different than what we say publicly. And I, I feel like that's, that was, that was the problem. The problem was that we weren't being open and whether it was my parents' divorce and the secrets that led to that divorce or mental illness that I saw in my family where everything was kept quiet and wasn't talked about. In my view, it was the silence that was the killer. It was the silence that was harming the church and I was tired of it. So I did lose respect for Richard Bushman and I lost respect for Terrell and Fiona Givens when I found out that they were doing these private firesides where they would say one thing in private, but then in public they would say different things. And I've just never had, I was never really a big fan of that kind of double speak. Um, cause I think it's what got us into that problem. So anyway, back to your question about apologists and, and critics and everything. After I interviewed Bushman, I felt like it wasn't, 
I knew I couldn't interview Grant Palmer until I had interviewed Bushman. So my memory is that I interviewed Bushman before Palmer. I believe that's right. Yeah. Um, but then I interviewed Grant Palmer because I felt like let's get both sides. Like we got to do both sides. We got to stop with the apologetics only. We got to hear what critics have to say. So I went to Grant Palmer's house. What a freaking legend. And he was willing to talk about the hard stuff, honestly and openly, to the point of getting, you know, disfellowshipped for it, right? And eventually he was threatened with excommunication. But he talked about the hard stuff in depth. His book, An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, was legendary. But it really pissed off Daniel Peterson and Louis Midgley and um, all those apologists that I would even give a platform to Grant Palmer. But that's a commitment I made on Mormon Stories that I've tried to live to to this day. I'll bring on faithful people, but I'm also going to bring on apostates and critics. And we'll, it, it'll be a dialectic where we'll arrive at the truth and at wisdom by interviewing all sides of the spectrum. And I've, I, I still think to this day, maybe, maybe your podcast is up there. Um, it probably is. But I don't think anybody has d worked harder to do more interviews from all sides of the spectrum. And I, I, that's one of the things I really value about gospel tangents is because if, if anybody were to, if anyone were to kind of challenge Mormon stories in that regard, it would probably be you. Wow. Yeah. And I respect that. Can I turn that. that into a commercial? Yeah. Yeah, you can. Yeah. Cause you've had, you've had Sandra on, right? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. You've had Will Bagley. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And Stephen so. Pinecker is is following in that tradition as well. Mm -hmm. So Mormon book reviews, thumbs up. Gospel tangents, thumbs up. And I that's the way I think it should be. And um, but the church does have a strengthening the church member committee. I learned about that while I was at BYU. Eugene England was a part of like the discovery of that, where the like the KGB or the CIA, the church keeps files on people, you know, and then when the time is right. Church had, and it's often fair Mormon apologist types that were used as as labor to track the internet writings and publishings of the members, and then when the time is right, fair Mormon Maxwell Institute people, farms people would contact local bishops and stake presidents, send them the file, inform them about what was being said and done, and then say, well, you know what to do. All while the church would say, we don't get involved in local matters because they found out that was problematic. So it well, was- it's a, problematic in their scripture, right? What do you mean? <laughs> the apostles aren't supposed to get involved in local matters. Yeah. I mean, it's in, it's in the Doctrine and Covenants, right? But they, but they were, and they do, and they did. And they were, you know, as the Christine Jepson Clark episode told, general authorities were telling stake presidents to excommunicate members of the September 6th, but then trying to claim- that they, they weren't, and that was yeah. dishonest, right? Well, and that's why I asked you the question because you said you'd had your bishop call you in twice. Was it was it the strengthening the church members committee? Well, he clearly wouldn't tell me that, so I don't know for sure. I know for sure the third time they were involved, okay. but but the first couple times with the with the different bishop, you know, um, I, I don't know, I don't know because he wouldn't tell me, but I suspect they might have been. Okay, yeah, but I got on. Fair Mormons, I don't know, they were called fair at the time. I got on fair's bad side as soon as I interviewed Grant Palmer. And from then on, eventually they kicked, for that and probably for like asking hard questions, they kicked me off their email list. And from then on, 
they viewed me as an enemy and I kind of viewed them as an enemy to truth and to honest, open discourse. And I've had a, I've kind of had a, a battle with apologists ever since then, but still from, from 2005 until 2014, uh, there were two years where I went inactive for a year each and, um, both times were really bad. Like, uh, I just felt empty. I felt dark. I missed the church. I missed the spirituality. I missed the hymns. I worried about how I would raise my kids. I felt like my family wasn't doing as well. So the, from 2006 to 2007, I went inactive for a year and I just felt like I need the church because like I'm getting lost without it and this anger isn't taking me anywhere. So from 2012 to 2014, we were, we were back in church again. And, uh, um, and so, yeah, so by, but that's when, what, what really I think was the beginning of the end was I was completing my LGBT research at, I'd done, I'd researched scrupulosity OCD for my PhD in psychology. Um, I'd started my PhD in psychology because so many, by that time, over 10,000 listeners had reached out to me for support for their marriage, for their mental health, for their gay, like a million reasons, you know, and I didn't feel capable of helping them in so many ways. So I figured I'll get my PhD in psychology. It'll help me help them when they come to me for support. And if I can end up being a therapist or a coach for people in faith crisis, I can stop working for MIT and just do this full time. I didn't know if I could ever do that, sustain that financially, but it was like this big leap of faith. So I started my PhD in 2009, studied OCD, religious scrupulosity for the first two years of my PhD, and then switched to the LGBTQ Mormon experience uh, for the last four years of my PhD and was invited to give a TED talk at Utah State in 2013. So I had reconciled with Margie back in church Faithful, but non-believing, but progressive, and gave a TED talk. This was 2008 with with Prop 8 really bothered me, and then Mitt Romney is running again in 2012, and the the church LGBT stuff is really bugging me. Reparative therapy is still a thing. The church is still promoting conversion therapy by 2011, 2012, 2013. So I decided to give a TED talk on the results of my LGBTQ research, saying that you can be an LGBTQ Mormon and an ally. And that was, and that with, along with Kate Kelly's ordained women movement and me supporting Kate Kelly and ordained women and writing an essay for the ordained women website where I express my public support for the ordination of women those two things happened in the fall of 2013. And by that time, the church had fired my stake president, put in a stake president, Brian King, who they knew was going to take care of business, replaced my bishop, and the church was ready to take me out. So, so do you think your first, was it one or two bishops advocated on your behalf? I do. My, and the stake president. So... um I think his name was Mark Nelson. Um, I can't believe I'm spacing on his name, but my first president, stake president, I think his name was Mark Nelson. Um, 
And he, we went through a year of counseling after, you know, this, this 2012, 2013 time period. He, I also want to baptize my son, Winston. And he's like, I don't think you're worthy because of your beliefs. And so we did like a year of counseling, sometimes weekly. And he worked with me over a year to the point where he allowed me to baptize Winston as a progressive believer um, around 2012, 2013-ish. And uh, Winston was nine, so I had to wait a year to baptize my son. Um, but then the church got rid of him because I think he just decided he wasn't willing to excommunicate me. Um, so I do Had my he TED served talk like nine years. Cause usually they yeah, serve about nine, it's like years. nine years. Yeah. So, that's my, that's I mean, my understanding. I mean, that that's about the time they would release him anyway. Right. Yeah. But I, my understanding is that, is that, um, uh, L Whitney Clayton and elder Ballard decided that I needed to be excommunicated. So they came, they did two state conferences in my stake within a very short time period, that bubble chart was created where my name was on it as one of the enemies of the church. They showed that to the local ward leadership in training and said, if you have anyone in your stake that meets these criteria or that appears on this bubble chart, you know, you, you, you know, there are things that should be done, you know, without like, I don't know, but they replaced Mark Nelson who had been a supporter of me, they replaced my bishop, they replaced the stake president after I gave my TED talk and by, and supported ordained women. And by January-ish of 2014, I was called in to my bishop's office by Brian Hunt and said, I'm starting an investigation on you because of your support of progressive um, movements within the church. And I'm like, what, what, and this is all audio recorded. You can, you can listen to this audio recording. But what I remember is him basically saying it was my support of same-sex marriage and my support of the ordination of women, progressive initiatives. So Brian King was your bishop, is that right? Brian King was my stake president. This is Brian Hunt, who was my, my bishop. So Brian Hunt said that he started the investigation and that was in January, February. And then it wasn't until the summer that Kate Kelly, and by the by, at that point, my daughter Maya was Laurel's president, and I think my daughter Clara was Beehive president. So we were in, we were still attending. My kids were being raised in the church, and I was worthy and faithful, <laughs> but progressive and angry about the LGBT stuff, all the LGBT suicides. You know, the churches. I was just getting more and more angry, and more and more conflicted about the ethics of staying in the church as a non-believer, knowing as a semi-believer, knowing that the church was harming so many people and unwilling to change. Denver Snuffer gets excommunicated at like the 20 year anniversary of the, of the September 6th. Was it the 20 or 30 year, 20 year anniversary of the September 6th, Denver Snuffer's excommunicated. That was the first like shoot a drop. It's like, uh Oh, they're starting to excommunicate for apostasy again. And then in mid-2014, Kate Kelly and I were- well, Denver Snuffer's the anti-John DeLynn, right? He's the well, he's the, on the other end of the pole. But just he's, like he's Arm- too just, much of a believer, right? Just like Avram Gileadi yeah. from the September 6th was, was on the conservative fundamentalist they side. They need to have one to balance the other? Is that, you know, yeah. got to get a 
right leaning or left leaning yeah. person to balance. Get them, get them all. And the bubble chart had had some guy by the last name of Norman and and Denver Snuffer on one side of the bubble chart, and then me and ordained women. They didn't name Kate Kelly and like support for LGBT stuff and you know porn like on the other side of the spectrum. And, support uh, for porn, something like that, <laughs> something like that. So Kate Kelly and I received our letters summoning us to a disciplinary council within a week of each other. And that happened, I, th I believe in the summer of 2014. And they did Kate Kelly's excommunication pretty quickly, but I had worked with Martin, you know, I, uh, I raised a stink and, um, you know, I had worked with Marlon Jensen on studying people in faith crisis. We haven't told this story. We need but like, to tell that story, but we'll save that for later. I'd worked with Marlon Jensen. I'd worked with the church. I had, you know, uh, met with Elder Holland twice. Like I had done my part to help the church make progress. And I think the church felt like there was a real risk in excommunicating me. And so it was like the longest drawn out disciplinary council ever, but it wasn't until like February of the following year where they ended up actually holding the disciplinary council. So, uh, so Cause yeah. I know Kate got excommunicated cause you were both going to get excommunicated about the same time yeah. and then yours got delayed for, I don't yeah. know why. And then yeah. they, they excommunicated Kate and then you were like six months later. Yeah. I well with me, one of the reasons why it was ridiculous is I received the letter about the excommunication, having never met with my stake president. So Brian, so the new, the new stake president, Brian King had never actually met me. I didn't even know his name. I don't think. And all of a sudden I'm getting a letter saying he wants to excommunicate me and I was attending church. So it's not like I was inactive. So I made a big stink about that. And so then he's like, okay, well, let's meet then, you know, because I'm like, oh, you're going to excommunicate me and we've never met. That's interesting. Um, my, my former stake president was fine with everything I was doing. What what changed? So we ended so up- So that's what caused the six month I, I think so. I okay. think so. So the church had to make it look like they were working with me and counseling with me. So I met with him three times. All those recordings I made audio recordings of, they're on Mormon stories. You can, they're ridiculous and- Everyone who listens to them gets sick to their stomach because of the way I was treated. I've actually almost had nobody, even believers, say that I would I misbehaved in those interviews, but uh, they were just going through the motions. Uh, we tried to have a dialogue. He he was a man on a mission. He had been told to excommunicate me. He didn't want to have. He didn't really ever want to listen. We never had genuine dialogue. And uh, long story short, is they. They pulled the trigger, like I think that next February, two thousand fifteen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and so um, want to switch gears a little bit. And talk about a couple of other uh, projects. You've you've already mentioned Stay LDS, and I kind of want to mention talk about Mormon Matters a little bit. Yeah. Can you talk about why you started those two sites specifically? Stay LDS was started to help keep people in the church. I had left the church for a year felt dark, lost. And, um, and then I saw a lot of people leave the church and wreck up their mess up their lives, divorce, infidelity, drug, alcohol addiction. I'm, I, I view things differently now, but at the time I just felt like people were better off staying if they could stay. 
but they didn't know how to stay. They didn't think they could stay as a nuanced or non-believer. So I'd write the manual for it. So StayLDS was literally, and it's still up, as I understand it, StayLDS.com. Yeah, you should sell, them, sell me the domain. Okay. <laughs> I'll sell you the domain maybe. I All don't right. know. I kind of like owning it. How about I lease it? I don't need money, but I'll let you take it over. I, I actually own StayLDS.org. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah. Oh, we'll talk. So. We'll talk. Um, I'd love people to do something better with it. Anyway, started that, put out that ebook on how to stay in the church, worked with Brian Johnson, Johnson, John Johnston. Johnston. Yeah. He, he passed away recently. I know. I'm sad about um, that. Super tragic. He was a friend of mine. Good guy. Um, yeah. So that's why I did stay LDS literally to help people stay in the church. And, uh, I even like, there's a temple recommend guide of how to answer the temple recommend questions, keeping your integrity, but, but also being able to get your recommend, you know, how to nuance tithing, you know, it was all in there. It's still there. It's a fun essay. Look it up. So that's, that, that's what was behind LDS. Um, so, but and we also created a forum where people could talk to each other and get to know each other. Yeah. That forum is still pretty popular. Um, it is. Yeah. So, uh, but my question is, do you really want people to stay LDS anymore? Oh, Okay. So one thing about CLDS that's really important is even though I was able to stay with the nuanced progressive testimony, I would have people, person after person, tell me that they couldn't do it. They would tell me, I tried, I did, followed what you said, and I just, it wasn't good for my mental health. It wasn't good for my well-being, or it was, it was, it, it, it became a matter of conscience. And I realized that I was propping up a set of recommendations that were only viable for a subset of people. And, but by putting the website up, it would allow other people to say, Hey, husband, you know, all these other people are staying Mormon. Why can't you, you know what I'm saying? Believing wife to non-believing husband or believing husband to non-believing wife. Look, say yes. Like even bishops were starting to use it. Bishops were using my ebook from StayLDS to help members stay in the church. But, and that, I, I was excited about that. I was, I was proud of that. But then there would be the people that, that said it was literally damaging their health and well being to stay. And I started to feel this conflict of like, am I setting people up for false expectations? Am I setting up a standard? That, that people could be judged by or pushed towards that wasn't actually healthy or sustainable for many, many people. Because I found that many, many, many people could stay for a while, but then they couldn't do it anymore. And at some point, I lost my confidence in being able to really say, this is a path that I recommend. It wasn't a path that I, even to this day, have like denounced, but it's a path I could no longer recommend as being viable for most people. So I actually, you can go read the most recent versions of that e-doc that I created with Brian, where I like had to put a disclaimer on there. John no longer like advocates for this way because it's not sustainable for many, but I kept the website up and I let other people manage it. And I still wanted it to be there as a resource for those who uh, found it useful. And I still feel that way to this day, which is why I've never taken it down and why I still refer people to it. 
occasionally. Do you still do refer oh, people yeah. to it? Oh, okay. for sure. I've had, when I, I used to coach, I don't, I don't coach much these days. I've kind of mothballed my coaching practice for now because Mormon Stories is like way busy. But all the time when I was a coach and people would say, my wife or husband believe, I don't believe anymore, but like it's going to wreck our family if, if, I, uh, if I leave. My spouse isn't ready for me to leave or my job. I'm a church employee. I'm a seminary and institute teacher. I'm a CES director. I'm a bishop. How can I stay? I'll, I'll, to this day, I'll point him to stay LDS, uh, that, that manual. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting. Yeah. Well, and so the other, the other project that I thought was really interesting that you started um, was Mormon Matters. Can you did, you blog, did you blog for Mormon Matters? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. 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 So like there are all these cool blogs, but none of them would let me blog for them. I blogged for BCC for just a little bit and that just didn't work out because they, they were more neo-apologist types and uh, finessing the problems. And I, I, I just never had a taste for that. I feel like that was a form of dishonesty. When you say they, are you referring to by common consent? Yeah. Or? Okay. Yeah, and the millennial star crowd and the times and seasons crowd. My form of progressive Mormonism was too bold, probably, or too controversial, too sharp-elbowed for them. So it was there's never a fit. And they always suspected I was a wolf in sheep's clothing too, many of them. So are you? Do <laughs> so you want to talk about that now or do you sure. want to finish talking about Mormon Matters? Well, I mean, I, I think we can get both. So I, I started Mormon Matters as just a blog to, to do cool blogging, but, but more honest, more open, talk about the hard stuff, talk about the controversies, talk about the truth claims, talk about nuanced Mormonism explicitly. So it was a, it was a super popular blog, probably one of the most popular blogs uh, in its heyday. And then there was just like, I would just say there was kind of like conflict between me and some of the bloggers. There was some dissent within the perma bloggers. I remember Cheryl Bruno being a part of that. I don't remember the details of the conflict. All I remembered was that it got to a head. I felt overwhelmed and stressed. I, I didn't want to blow up what was happening but, and, and maybe a lot of the bloggers weren't comfortable working with me anymore, but it ended up, we ended up basically allowing wheat and tares to be created. And we allowed them to kind of like migrate all the content to a new blog. And then they continued as wheat and tares. And, and then I kept the domain and then later allowed Dan Witherspoon to take it over as a podcast. And Dan Witherspoon did Mormon Matters podcast for a long time. Okay. Because as I remember with Mormon Matters, one of the things, one of your goals was to um, bring together everybody, yeah. ex-Mormons, faithful Mormons, and just have everybody talk. Um, but it sounds like, kind of like with Stay LDS, is, is that just, is that, is that a sustainable model? I mean. Well, I mean, you're doing it. And Stephen Pinecker's doing it. Well, well Stephen Pinecker's not LDS. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Well, you are. I am. Yeah. And, you know, Sunstone does it. Uh, it's doable. And I still try and do it. Um, 
So yeah, it's, it's sustainable. You just have to be super careful and you have to not cross certain lines. Um, my mistakes were once I started studying the LGBT issues in depth and started and found out about the suicide statistics in Utah for LGBT youth and, and LGBT Mormon adults and the mixed orientation marriage fiasco that, uh, I gathered data about and the high divorce rate double the average divorce rate sometimes for first marriages with mixed orientation marriages, super low quality of life, the suicidality between the celibacy, mixed orientation marriages and LGBT suicides and depression that radicalized me along with, um, uh, along with my state president, you know, along with ordained women and them excommunicate Kelly and then my stake president asking me, because because when I met back with my stake president, Brian King, he gave me an ultimatum. I said, what do I have to do to stay a member? And he said, take down Mormon stories, basically. Um, there was a little bit of nuance to that, but it's basically take down every episode that would ever cause anyone to question anything. And I'm like, that's, no. Like, I'm not going to take down Mormon stories. Even though I told him how many people... And again, I had everybody reach out to him and email him and tell him how many people were active in the church because of Mormon stories. He didn't care. He was fingered with the job to do. So uh, none of that mattered to him. So if it was if if I had to choose being censored about advocating for for LGBT people, advocating for same sex marriage because it was a matter of voting, advocating for uh, honesty and openness versus censorship, homophobia you know, misogyny and sexism, I'm not, I'm not going to roll back. So that radicalized me just along with, along with all the pain and suffering of all the people in faith crisis when the church just didn't seem to want to really do anything meaningful. So that radicalized me, which led to me and my refusal to take everything down led to my excommunication, which then made a lot of faithful scholars, apologists, believing people just unwilling to come on the podcast and a lot of people blame my tone for some of the more liberal or progressive believing people not being willing to come on Mormon stories. But there's, you know, people started declining to come on Mormon stories because of my excommunication before my tone got, got more harsh. Once people like Bushman refused to come on, Fiona and Terrell Givens, who I had on twice before, declined to come on. Flumen declined to come on. Like once the church excommunicated me, that put the scarlet letter on me in Mormon stories, which then made people who were previously willing to come on Mormon stories no longer willing to come on Mormon stories. That's when I started getting angry and my tone got kind of more and more harsh and severe. But to this day, you know, I've had Jim Bennett on. I had, I had Joe, um, I'm spacing on his name, Joe. Tippets, you know, I recently, uh, I, I have believers on whenever they'll come on, whenever they have something interesting to say, a lot of faithful people just won't come on anymore. And, uh, it's probably partly me, but it's partly the church. I mean, they know what they're doing when they excommunicate people and then have a temple recommend question that says, do you support any apostate groups? They know what they're doing there. Plus, you know, if you're Pat Mason, and rich donors support your endowed chair. 
Are you going to come on Mormon stories? Maybe not. You know, if you're Richard Bushman, you're working at, if you're Phil Barlow working at the, if you're Terrell Givens working at the Maxwell Institute, can you keep your job at the Maxwell Institute and come on Mormon stories? Probably not. So I blame the church as much as my tone for the way Mormon stories is skewed towards more um, aggressive discourse. Along with my just impatience at all the pain and suffering and death and divorce and destructions of families that I've witnessed over the past 20 years, at some point the church becomes complicit in the deaths and the divorce and the depression and the anxiety that uh, the carnage that is the way the church handles all of these issues. And, you know, one year, five years, 10 years, but really 20 years, 50 years in, the church still can't figure this stuff out, how to be honest, how to handle faith crisis stuff, how to handle LGBT people, how to apologize for its racism, how to incorporate women. Like 100, 200 years in, it can't learn how to be honest and upright about its history and apologize. Like at some point you just, you lose your patience and you feel like the church has blood on their hands. And so back to your original question, do I believe there could be an open forum of balanced discussion between believers and non-believers? Yes, it's super hard. And at some point they excommunicate you for it. If you, if you are willing to criticize the leaders who deserve to be criticized, honestly, and if you're willing to uh, talk about the truth claims in ways that uh, are honest, but that, that, but that lead people to look at the church with, with intellectual scrutiny. And then the other thing is you have to get popular. Like someone can say, well, Rick Bennett still does, you know, gospel tangents, but, but as unknown as I am, you're probably less known than me. But if you ever got as popular as well, you're Mormon, the man, the myth, and the legend, right? No, that's you. <laughs> Didn't you hear how I started this episode? But part of it is you have to get popular enough. They're not going to excommunicate you if you're flying under the radar. But once you really get traction and and um, start becoming known by, let's just say, 5% of the church membership, uh, and you talk about, you know, you, you're willing to criticize church leaders or talk about the truth claims in a very explicit way that allows people to kind of see a more honest, realistic context for the problems with the church's truth claims, which I'd love to have a conversation with you about. That's when you get put on the radar and that's when you face church discipline. And that's what happened to Jeremy Runnels, you know, September 6th, Grant Palmer, Bill Real. That's what happens. So, a bunch of different ways I want to go. Um, All right, this is good stuff. Which way to go. Now, we're, now we're now we're getting to the good we're stuff. The big fork of the road with like three choices. Um, let's go with uh, uh, so you so after you got excommunicated, you um, became more harsh. Is that a fair word uh, towards apologists? And I know you used the term neo apologists. Um, what, what's the difference between an apologist and a neo-apologist? So I think of classic Mormon apologetics as Hugh Nibley, um, Daniel C. Peterson, Lewis Midgley, uh, style where your number one tool is ad hominem smearing the reputation of the critic or of the honest questioner, calling them gay, 
um, accusing them of adultery, um, calling them a wolf in sheep's clothing or an apostate. That's, you know, ever since Hugh Nibley published No Ma'am, that's not history, without ever really dealing with any of the merits of Fawn Brody's concerns in her book, that he set the tone. Um, and in Daniel C. Peterson has been super happy to pick up that baton. Fair Mormon continued with it all the way to kind of Kwaku and Cardinellis and the This Is The Show videos that were taken down. This whole rich multi-decade tradition of smearing critics or smearing honest questioners and then offering disingenuous science, specious, invalid science, um, and ridiculous, uh, illogical, dis knowingly dishonest answers to the problems with the church's truth claims. And that's what Hugh Nibley did. That's what Farms did. That's what Fair Mormon does and did. And it's an embarrassing blight on the, the church, in my opinion. And I think those people have done way more harm than good, not just to the church, but to people doubting. And I can't tell you how many people I've interacted with over the past two decades who say it was Fair Mormon or the Maxwell Institute or Farms that caused their faith crisis because their answers were so horrible or they were misbehaved so badly in their apologetic ad hominem that the, the church lost additional credibility knowing that the church was bankrolling all of these efforts, right? So, so that's classic apologists. Classic apologists. And then, and then once the internet really got up to speed, starting in the 2000s, we started calling out Daniel Peterson and Louis Midgley and others. In fact, there was a point where uh, I learned from a, an employee of the Maxwell Institute that Daniel Peterson and Louis Midgley and um, – uh, who is the Canadian um, apologist doctor guy uh, who wrote the hit piece, the two hit pieces on me? Anyway, I caught wind from within the Maxwell Institute that another part of the Maxwell Institute, Greg Smith was his name, that another member of the Maxwell Institute or group of them were writing two hit pieces on me back in in 2012 while I was working with Marlon Jensen directly to help solve the church's problem with its faith crisis stuff. So here I am, I conduct a study with my friend Travis Stratford and Greg Prince in response to Hans Matson, Swedish Mormon area authority who had lost his faith. We collaborate on doing a study of why people are leaving the church. We get like 3000 people to fill out the survey. We compile the, the results with the, with a dozen PhDs, compile that into a study, and then literally share that with church headquarters, share it with Marlon Jensen. Um, Travis Stratford goes to church headquarters to present the findings of the study to the missionary committee, to church PR, to the correlation committee, to the priesthood committee, you know, curriculum, CES, all of them, and say, hey, Mormon church, there's a problem. People are losing their faith, and this is why you need to start being honest with your history and stop deceiving people. I was the, you know, me along with Greg Prince and Travis Stratford, we were the creators of that study. And uh, this is all, the, the history of this has been covered a bit in Matt and 
Matthew Harris's book on the gospel topics. Yeah, it's the introduction. Yeah. Um, but there are other places where we've talked about this. But, you know, that's me. I met with Elder Holland twice personally to try and counsel him on how to deal with people in faith crisis. And the church is doing nothing. And with Mormon stories that say LDS, that's literally how I'm spending all my time is trying to keep people in the church. So the fact that, uh, so that's what I was doing. And then, and then you've got the Maxwell Institute writing a hit piece against me, hundred page hit piece, trying to smear me and call me a wolf in sheep's clothing while I'm helping the church for free. Right. It was ridiculous. So, so I, as soon as I found out about that hit piece from a Maxwell Institute employee, I notify Marlon Jensen and Elder Holland and everyone that I knew, like, can you help me understand why I'm helping you and your, your funding hit pieces being written about me? And that was when Daniel Peterson was removed from the Maxwell Institute. He's removed from his position as the leader of the Maxwell Institute. And I have it on good authority that Marlon Jensen and Elder Holland were both involved in the removal of Daniel Peterson from the Maxwell Institute directly for his unwillingness to back down. So, um, you know, that's my side of the story. You know, other people may have their sides of the story, but I was, again, I had a source from within the Maxwell Institute um, that was, that was uh, you know, telling me what was going on behind the scenes. So, um, but again, that was a classic instance of, of, uh, of classic ad hominem Mormon apologetics. Once Daniel Peterson was dethroned from the Maxwell, Maxwell Institute and, and Jerry Bradford, you know, dethroned him from direction from the BYU president and Elder Holland, eventually Spencer Fluman was put in and the, and this is, uh, um, you know, a lot of people contributed to this, but the, the decision was that's not an effective way to deal with doubters, to deal with critics to deal with people who question. So they migrated their apologetic approach with Spencer Fluman and the Maxwell Institute towards what's called pastoral apologetics, which is not, not to engage in ad hominem anymore, not to engage in specious, ridiculous pseudoscience, non-peer-reviewed pseudoscience with ridiculous answers, like a, maybe when Joseph Smith wrote Horse in the Book of Mormon, he meant taper. Maybe there's two Hill Kimoras instead of one. Instead of all that garbage, you know, um, we're going to show support to people who are doubting. We're going to love people who question. And we're going to just try and provide a more nuanced and progressive path for staying in the church, a la Terrell and Fiona Givens, a la Patrick Mason in his book Planted. We're going to show a more loving pastoral approach. Stop trying to address the the scientific criticisms of the church's truth claims because we know we have nothing there. We know that science wins every time we try and argue with science on any of the problems with the church's truth claims. So we're going to stop trying to provide those types of answers, love people, and stop with the ad hominem. So I I named that neo-apologetics. They hate it. So like none of them like that term. I don't even know how well it's it's known, but that's what I mean when I say a neo-apologist. And that's Richard Bushman, that's Terrell and Fiona Givens, that's Patrick Mason, that's Spencer Fluman, that's that's Adam, what's the guy? Miller. Adam Miller, 
good people, smart people, lovely people, trying to do institutionally within the church, frankly, what I was trying to do with Mormon Matters, with Dan Witherspoon, with Stay LDS, you know, trying to create a progressive, faithful Mormonism that's more liberal and non-literal within Mormonism. So, okay, so apologetics are ad hominems, and neo-apologetics are nicer, but still lacking. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Well, okay, I think it's I think it's unchristlike to engage in ad hominem attacks. So that's definitely improvement. Neo-apologists, neo neo apologetics, Mormon neo apologetics for me is an improvement on pretty much every level. There's no way I don't. I'm not aware of any way where it's not an improvement. So getting rid of ad hominem improvement, getting rid of of stupid pseudoscientific, non peer reviewed garbage responses to challenges to the church's truth claims, improvement, showing love and empathy, improvement, all that's an improvement. When I are you asking why I've been critical of neo apologists? Well, that's where I was going. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to ask the question or well, however you want to ask it? I mean, well, I wanted to make sure I understood the difference first. Um, does that make sense? Do you have any, do you do you want to push back on that in any way? No. Well, I mean, it, it does lead into the question of if it's such an improvement because I know it seems like last year you were really going after Patrick Mason really hard, and because uh, he'd given a fireside and you put a kind of a rebuttal video out there. And, um, you know, I, I know you're frustrated with, uh, Patrick won't come on your show. Richard Bushman won't come on Terrell Givens, et cetera, et cetera. Um, before but, my tone changed, that was true. I just you, want to make that clear. Part of what people want to do is revisionist history that it's because my tone changed, but they stopped being willing to come on my show before my tone changed. And so because they, Quit coming on. Was the beast unleashed? <laughs> well, <laughs> were, were you like, I'm not going to hold fair. back. I'm going to, I'm going to hold, you know, Patrick Mason to account for bad yeah. apologetics or whatever you want to say. I, I'm just asking. So is, first is of why? all, I like, I love and respect every single person that I mentioned in that group. I love and respect Phil Barlow, Terrell and Fiona Givens, Richard Bushman, Patrick Mason, Spencer Fluman. They're bright. Adam Miller, brilliant, good-hearted, honest, bright people. Uh, I've felt really conflicted in how I've talked about them, and I regret, whenever I've been harsh or unfair or mean-spirited, I regret that. So I'm, I'm happy to apologize to all of them and say I'm sorry for all the ways I've hurt any of you if I've ever hurt any of you. Um, so there's that. Um, Patrick and I wrote a column together once after I was excommunicated where we were trying to dialogue back and forth about truth claims and stuff. And Patrick quit the column um, because he didn't like my expression of anger and frustration and concern. And that was frustrating. In some sense, I felt relieved, but in some sense, I felt frustrated by that. But we 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 stayed on good terms. But um, like, what it comes to, so why why have I been critical of neo apologists? There's a couple reasons why. Um, 
One is the private versus the public dichotomy. I started hearing about Terrell and Fiona Givens traveling around the world doing these special private firesides where rich Mormons would pay for them to travel around the world and give these firesides. Only people who were questioning were invited. And then they would give their best apologetic responses, but it could never be recorded. And they would never publish what was said. And, um, and it was all just kind of like their spin, but never, never shared publicly and um, never adopted by the church. And that's sort of like private secret elite treatment um, is a, is kind of a thing of privilege. It's kind of a, it's, it's kind of back to the double speak. It's back to the, the two face kind of approach. And when I started Mormon stories, it was always about transparency. And so number one, are these people spokespeople? Are they prophets, seers, and revelators? Are they apostles? It, it, are they, it, are they even sanctioned by the church to be giving these, maybe the, maybe the Book of Mormon isn't historical. Maybe the Book of Abraham wasn't a translation. Maybe it was, you know, um, inspired through, what's it called? Revelation. Revelation or whatever. Like, maybe polygamy wasn't, you know, maybe Joseph Smith went off the hinge a little bit and polygamy was never, you know, they're giving all these answers to kind of pacify people privately that is not endorsed by the church, is not shared church-wide, and it felt two-faced, and it felt elitist, and it felt disingenuous. Because number one, it's, it's only shared in private. They would never say those things in public that they would share in private, like when Richard Bushman backtracks on the the historical narrative is unsustainable. And people say that I mischaracterized him. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but he was uncomfortable that what he shared in private was made public. And I think that's duplicitous. I do. I think it's duplicitous. When they say things in public that they won't say, when they say things in private that they won't say in public, that's dishonesty to me. So it's dishonest is my first concern. It's elitist. That's my second concern. It's unofficial. That's my third concern, which leads to my fourth concern, which is that the brethren are never held to account. And the broader church never has, if as long as apologists, neo-apologists, can be carted out to sort of like deal with people in these super secret, private, elitist engagements, the brethren never have to apologize. They never have to say they're sorry. They never have to actually correct the record. And it, it, is, it is reminiscent of how the church handled the gospel topics essays, which, is, which were pro primarily, likely, legally motivated and not motivated from a sense of true desire for openness and honesty and transparency. And the way you know that is when Snow acknowledges that they were buried on the website, meant to be offered, not known by the church public at large, but they were off. They were published on the website for plausible deniability. Those weren't his words, but they were mine. And then they weren't advertised broadly. To this day, most bishops and stake presidents don't know about them, let alone have read them. Most members of the church don't know about them, let alone have read them. They're buried in many ways, and then 
um, they're only brought out when somebody's having a, a faith crisis. So, so the church can say, they can point to the buried gospel topics essays and say, see, we're transparent. We've resolved, not to mention that the substance of the essays themselves are highly incomplete or disingenuous or misleading. That's a problem in and of itself. But aside from that, they're hidden. They're not advertised. There's never been, as far as I know, a general conference talk where the members are encouraged to read them and to get to know them and become familiar with them. There might be a talk here and there at a BYU thing or some random fireside that Ballard gave. But to this day, my understanding is that the church general public has never been made aware of the gospel topics essays. And, and to me, that's not the type of full honesty that the church taught me to, to, to emulate and to show. And to me, neo-apologists enable that duplicity and they enable the church never having to actually be accountable for not just deceiving a couple hundred years worth of members on its history, knowingly deceiving a couple hundred years worth of members on its history, but also punishing its truth tellers, like the September 6th, like Maxwell Hanks, like Eugene England, silencing him, like Lowell Binion, like, uh, you know, so many, right? So the, the apologists are, the neo-apologists are enablers of duplicity, and they're enablers of the of the church leadership not having to be fully accountable and fully transparent. And I'm torn. You know, I talked to David Bakavoy about this once. David Bakavoy, and this this is not a new thought. I knew this before, but you know, David Bakavoy said they're they're a bridge, they're a way station. Like all of this stuff, neo apologetics, the gospel topics essays. They're like a soft landing ramp when people are in faith crisis. Even if they're going to leave the church, they provide people the soft landing in a faith crisis to then let them get their bearings, not blow up their lives, and then in a more peaceful way decide whether they're going to stay or leave. And he's right. And uh, so I've been too harsh with with um, neo-apologists, and I regret that. And... Uh, it's, it takes all kinds. It took Malcolm X and it took Martin Luther King. And Richard Bushman has contributed more to historical transparency than almost anyone. And I know Patrick Mason and Spencer Fluman and the Givens are good people trying to do good, trying to move the church in progressive and healthy directions. So long story short is I regret how hard I've been on them, but when I've been hard on them, that's why. And, um, but, but I, I, I will also say I, part of why I was hard on them was just like sour grapes that they used to support Mormon stories and then stopped. And that forces Mormon stories to shift to the less faithful when faithful people will no longer come on. And it feels like rejection because I helped when Terrell and Fiona Givens first came on Mormon stories, many of their books weren't even offered a Deseret book. I helped, I think I helped resuscitate. I, I think I helped make Daryl, Terrell and Fiona Givens prominent, as prominent as they are within Mormonism. My first Mormon Stories interview did. And that led to their book deal with the Crucible of Doubt, as I understand it. 
and they came on the second time and I promoted the crucible of doubt. So like you would think if, if we had had that relationship, if we had had that good faith, even if I had been excommunicated, even if I was a little bit salty, that they would say, Hey, John's been good to us. We still support the mission of what John's trying to do. Yeah. We'll come back on Mormon stories to promote our new book, but no, they wouldn't. And Patrick Mason you know, part of what made me super angry at him was that he agreed that we would cover one of his new books on Mormon stories, and then he backed out. And and that's childish and petty of me to be angry at them for that. But I was childish and petty, and I I struggle with that. And uh, I'm just going to keep trying to work on it. But I do regret it. I love you, Patrick. You know. I never really met Spencer. I mean, I've met Spencer, but we've never hung out. You know, Terrell Givens, Terrell and Fiona, I respect you. Richard Bushman, I doubt you care, but uh, I respect you. And if I've ever caused you grief, I'm sorry. Very good. Very good. Well done. Um, another issue I wanted to talk about was um, you, you had a, a good relationship with Elder Holland. And you had mentioned that uh, you, you had broken a confidence and um, can you tell us a little bit about that story? Well, uh, my memory's going to be fuzzy on this, but here's what I know. Uh, on the one hand, when I met with him twice, he literally said to me, you can, I don't like, you can tell anybody anything that I said here. And there was a point where he even encouraged me to make a particular statement um, to people unattributed to him. But he certainly never said to me, um, never tell anyone what we talked about. And it'd be stupid for him to say that because that would that would be an apostle of Jesus basically saying, don't quote me. You know what I mean? They're supposed to be bolding and testing. So I hope that makes sense to people. Um, but I think there's a code where if you meet with an apostle, you don't talk about it, you know? You, you, you know people that have met with apostles and they're like, I'm not going to say who. You know what I mean? Like there's that code within Mormonism where when you meet with a high level church leader, you don't say who it was and you don't really give any specificity because they get in trouble. Like even within the monks themselves, when Jeffrey Holland speaks out or Boy K. Packer says something dumb, the others clearly behind the scenes express concern and they get in trouble. And so they don't want dissent in the quorum. They certainly don't want public dissent and they're all managing their political capital, just like Richard Bushman or Patrick Mason are. So they don't want to be, if they're more progressive, they don't want to be quoted in a way to more where the more hardliners who have more seniority might call them out or punish them in some way. Just like when Marlon Jensen apologized to the saints of Oakland about the LGBT stuff. And then Packer found out, you know, Marlon Jensen told me the story of how he was called under the carpet by Boyd K. Packer for apologizing to the saints in Oakland. I've got that on audio tape, by the way. Um, but, uh, but there's an unwritten understanding that you just don't talk about what was shared. So after, after all the stuff at the Maxwell Institute went down, when Daniel Peterson was coming at me and the hit piece was being written. That was when he was at the interpreter now. Is that right? This is before the interpreter was created. He created the interpreter immediately after getting booted from his position uh, that he was in at the Maxwell Institute. He stayed at the Maxwell Institute, but it was just with the Arab stuff. It was no longer like head of apologetics. Mm -hmm. 
and he committed he he created the interpreter right after and the hit pieces that he published about me were going to go in like the journal of book of mormon or whatever studies whatever it was and those were some of the first articles in the interpreter that's how they were published but prior to that while he was still in and all this stuff with Gerald Bradford and, and the Maxwell Institute and the president of BYU, was it Merrill Bateman? I forget who it was at the time. And Holland and, um, you know, and Marlon Jensen. When all that was going on, um, I'm sure that I said somewhere that either I had met with Elder Holland or Elder Holland had my, you know, supported me or whatever. And, um, and it may have been related to other issues, uh, but yeah, at some point I I made it known that Elder Holland and I had corresponded, and you know that that we had favorable correspondence, and he didn't. I think he didn't like that, and it was from then on that he would never return my emails or be willing, you know, to meet with me again. Um, oh, and I know, I know that, um, I told my state president at some point that I had met with, El, uh, elder Holland and, um, maybe during the second anointing, when I had interviewed Tom Phillips about the second anointing, I went to my previous state president, Mark Jensen, and I had asked him if I could release, I, I knew that someone who received the second anointing was sworn not to talk about it. What I wasn't sure is, is that if I published someone talking about their second anointing experience, if I could face church discipline for that, because by this point I was back active again and wanted to stay in the church. So I did mention to my stake president that I'd had interactions with Elder Holland. And I was like, can you please find out from somebody whether I'm going to get in trouble for publishing the Tom Phillips interview about the second anointing? And at some point, the message came back through my stake president. Elder Holland doesn't like being quoted in any of this context, and he doesn't want you to ever mention his name again. And that's when I kind of got the sense. Is that because uh, Tom Phillips had mentioned Elder Holland in, a, in the interview? Yeah, that, that might have been part of it because, yeah, that, that's a good connection. I'm fuzzy on what pissed Elder Holland off. And, of course, he would have never told me. So I'm left oh, to guess. I thought it had something to do with Daniel Peterson, it, it, but maybe it, not. It's all a jumble in my mind, and all of this may have happened around a similar time period. Um, so it's fuzzy. But what's, what I'm sure of is I did either let my stake president or like Daniel Peterson or, you know, in that dialogue I mentioned interactions with Elder Holland, and Elder Holland, I got the sense he didn't appreciate it. And he sent a message to me not to mention his name again. And from then on, he wouldn't respond to any of my correspondence. And I don't blame him. I think a certain amount of confidentiality is just required to operate at that level. So, yeah, around then, we, we never communicated again. Okay. But, but, but Tom Phillips did talk in depth about um, his attempts to reconcile his faith crisis with Elder Holland. And I'm sure that wasn't fun for Elder Holland because there was some writings about Tom Phillips in the second anointing before my Mormon Stories episode. But once I released that Mormon Stories episode about Tom Phillips' second anointing, that really blew up. That's one of my top most important and most listened to episodes of all time. Okay. 
one thing that we've kind of danced around a little bit and I want to do a little bit more uh, depth on is uh, your study at Utah State that you did on why uh, people leave the church. Uh, I know Matthew Harris cited that in uh, Gospel Topics essays. And can you talk about more details about how you started that study and, and and the results of that? Yeah. So early on in my Mormon Stories career, I started seeing a lot of Swedish listeners and commenters. Um, and I even made friends with a few of them. And so I'm like, wow, we've got a Swedish contingency that's kind of significant. I wonder what's going on in Sweden. Then, uh, then I started getting word that, that there was like a group of Swedish, you know, doubters that was starting to like meet and, and communicate. I'm like, whoa, this is getting serious. Then I found out that a former area authority named Hans Matson had lost his faith possibly and was a part of this Swedish group that was having doubts and questions. Um, and I, um, part of that was from him like, commenting on my Mormon stories blog or signing up to follow me or something. And then part of it was just back channel communications I got from some of my Swedish listeners, but it started to boil. Swedish stuff started to boil. And then I don't remember exactly when my friend Travis, Travis Stratford, who designed the Mormon stories logo, he's a top notch graphic designer, brand manager in New York city, owns a firm with a couple other friends, done a lot of consulting with the church. Travis served a mission in Sweden and he's like, Hey man, I've been in touch with Hans Matson, who's a former area authority and he's, he's lost his faith and he's really upset about it. And at some point during this time, the Swedish rescue happened. And this is one of the things I'm most fun about the history is that all these Swedish people and Hans Matson raised a big enough ruckus to where Marlon Jensen, Wiley's church historian and, um, Turley, Richard, Richard Turley, Turley, go to Sweden and hold one of these private firesides and try and resolve the doubts and questions of all these Swedish members. And this was recorded. And you can find the audio recording on Mormon Stories. And uh, it's just a pathetic attempt at giving lame answers to doubts about people's questions around the truth, truth claims. And then like all these barrage of questions from the Swedish members showing that they weren't satisfied with the dumb answers that were being given by Jensen and Turley. And uh, it was called the Swedish rescue. It was recorded. We ended up releasing the audio of the recording and it was a real watershed moment for the church. Um, in addition, um, Hans Matson uh, sort of reached out to me and Patrick, uh, Travis Stratford and Greg Prince and others and said, I want to hold a meeting. It was almost like kind of a high noon, um, kind of thing. And, uh, and basically what they said is, is Marlon Jensen, this is Hans Matson. you know, your church historian. They said, uh, meet me in New York city and, we're going to talk to you about the problems with, uh, you know, the church and its truth claims and its history. And we're going to have kind of like a high noon showdown. So that meeting gets scheduled in New York city and, um, Greg Prince convinced Travis to, to disinvite me from that meeting 
for diplomatic kind of political reasons. And uh, so Greg Prince, Hans Matson, Marlon Jensen, and probably Turley and and Travis Stratford met in New York City. And in Why do you think you were disinvited? Greg, I get the sense that Greg convinced Travis to disinvite me because the because I had a public platform. I had the podcast and they were worried that maybe Marlon Jensen Maybe Marlon didn't want me to be there, or maybe they were worried that I might disclose on the podcast things that were discussed in the private meeting. Maybe they didn't like me. I don't know. This is like 2009 time period, roughly? Maybe 10, maybe 11 okay. kind of thing. Definitely before the Gospel Topics essays were released, and I'll tell you why I remember it that way. So we all meet, well, they meet, but we wanted to prepare data so that it wouldn't just be anecdotal. We had data. So I designed a survey for that meeting where I, I, and I designed it, Travis reviewed it, but I put up a bunch of questions about why I thought people were leaving and I put them into a survey. We used Lime survey, which was some open source PHP based software to run the survey. And we, I threw it out to all my followers and listeners and like 3000 people filled out the survey and they, they checked all the boxes for why they lost their faith and, whether they were still active and that sort of thing. This is what's well, called a snowball sample, uh -huh, right? Snowball it's not sample. a random, random sample. Not a random sample. Um, and I didn't do this as a part of Utah State University. They wished I had. My advisor was like, why didn't we do an IRB with this? And then we could have used the data, but I didn't. It was an individual initiative with with these other people, not not supported by Utah State. Um, it was just I did it on the side while I was getting my PhD. And, uh, yeah, so we did it 3000 plus people filled it out. And then I got a, like a dozen PhDs to all help me crunch and analyze the data. Morgan McCune and, and my friend, um, Scott, uh, I'm like blanking on names, but lots of really brilliant social scientists and scholars, uh, were involved and, um, yeah, we crunched the numbers and, uh, put together a presentation and put some PowerPoint slides together, some graphics and some visual stuff. And, um, and that was used in that New York meeting with Travis and Hans and, and um, Marlon Jensen. And my understanding from the meeting was that Marlon Jensen was shook by the data, especially the demographic data the education level of the people in faith crisis was higher than the average ed education level for people in the church and the, the income levels of the people losing their faith was higher on average than the average member. And the appearance of like former bishops, former stake presidents, former mission presidents was like former stake high councilman was off the charts and Marlon Jensen's response to that was, we're losing our best and brightest. He was shocked. And so he said, can you not publish these data? Can you not publish this report? Can I take them back to church headquarters and argue for um, some sort of program or initiative that would help the church become more transparent in its history to avoid this hemorrhaging of uh, members? of our best and brightest, of some of the top members. So we didn't release the data at the time and we sat on it and we waited and we waited and we waited and it just felt like nothing was happening. So I got impatient 
And at some point I reached out and I just said, Hey, talk to Marlon, you know, you know, please like let him know either, either release the data or tell us what's going on, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna release the data. And at some point Marlon Jensen reached out to me and through Phil Barlow and we had a private meeting lunch at Phil Barlow's house. I recorded the audio from that meeting and it was just kind of just like a get to know you. I explained Marlon what I did and why. And he thanked me for my research. He asked me what I would do to, to kind of fix the problems in the church. This is when he told me the story about Boyd K Packer calling him under the carpet for, um, you know, for apologizing to the Oakland saints about the LGBT fiasco. It was a lovely meeting. He's a brilliant, he, it's, he cried. He told me he wondered what he had done to be passed over as an apostle. He felt sad about that. Um, he, he, he blamed himself, but didn't know why he was passed over. And, um, uh, yeah, he expressed real regret and sadness for all the pain and suffering that not only LGBT members, but also people in faith crisis were having. And at some point in the whole process, he said, before you release the data, can I have one more chance to kind of make my case? And my sense was, was that he was trying to convince the apostles to do the gospel topics essays or some sort of transparency initiative. And at some point they flew Travis to church headquarters where he presented to the correlation committee, CES, missionary department, PR, probably others, priesthood committee. And he, he presented to them a refined version of the study that Marlon Jensen had received in New York with Hans Matson, And apparently Marlon Jensen, that was his attempt to persuade the brethren to support the gospel topics essays initiative. And apparently that was instrumental in Marlon Jensen convincing the brethren to approve the gospel topics essays, which as I hear, they begrudgingly approved. I think Uchtdorf was a big part of that. I think Quentin Cook was a big part of that. Wasn't the New York Times article a big part of that? And then, yeah, eventually Hans Matson spilled his tea with the New York Times. And also a big part of that was when Marlon Jensen came to BYU to give a private speech, I asked a student to record the audio from that presentation, where in that audio recording, Marlon Jensen was quoted as saying, this is the biggest uh, apostasy we've seen in the church since Kirtland. And of course, once that got published, he backtracked and said he was misquoted and the church wheeled out its apologists because I think the UPI or one of the press, you know, one of the press, you can still find that, that story. It got picked up in the press that Marlon Jensen, church historian and general authority was acknowledging the defections and the hemorrhaging that was a disaster. I, I was the one that commissioned the recording, audio recording of that, um, which I'm proud of. And yeah, all of that led to Hans Matzid um, speaking to Lori Goodstein of the New York Times, a whole profile on Hans Matzid coming out in the New York Times about the faith crisis problem. And I interviewed Hans, Hans and Birgitta Matson on Mormon Stories. And all of that was just a really mind-blowing, explosive time. And eventually I released the findings of that report at a Mormon studies academic conference at Utah Valley University, 
This is around the 2011, 2012 timeframe. I debated Scott Gordon, a fair Mormon on stage. It was a kind of a, I don't know, a poop show, a crap show. I'll say to not swear on your, on your show. And it led to a lot of tension between me and, and the apologists that led to the hit piece that was released. But it also led to my anger at the hit piece that I'd spent a couple years of my life trying to help the church, help Marlon Jensen, help get the gospel topics essays released, help the church solve the faith crisis problem to then have the church pay people to malign me. And, and that's again led to the falling out with Holland and eventually my excommunication. So that's that story. <laughs> Any questions about that? I'm trying to remember if there's anything else. Um, was there a second study or, or did you just do the one study? I thought there were well, two. Well, okay, yeah, what, what, yeah, there was a second and maybe a third study where Travis wanted to get more qualitative um, anecdotal kind of stories to supplement the data from the, from the original study. So he did that. Um, you weren't I probably in helped him advertise it. Okay. I wasn't involved in the processing of the crunching of the numbers. And then he compiled all of that with the data into this massive, incredible Madison Avenue, um, presentation slash book that he put together into a bound book and personally delivered to uh, Elder President Uchtdorf by then, I think. I think he was in the first presidency by that point. And delivered, well, President Uchtdorf was supposed to meet him in person. For some reason, President Uchtdorf had a thing and couldn't meet Travis in person. But Travis had that book personally delivered to Uchtdorf. And it was the very next fall from that summer as I recall, that Uchtdorf gave his famous first talk expressing empathy for people who doubt. And we believe that the study not only was instrumental in the Gospel Topics essays being released, and we've been told that by numerous people on the inside, but that that's what led to Uchtdorf giving more public addresses showing empathy for people in faith crisis in general conference, which then he got punished for and kicked out of the First Presidency for according to people as well. So that's all stuff that along with a lot of other really smart, good people like Travis Stratford, Hans Matson, Marlon Jensen, that, that was an effort that I spent multiple years trying to positively and constructively engage the church from within only to be excommunicated as a thank you and to have the church pay people to write hit pieces to smear me as a thank you. So yeah, when I get angry and salty, maybe those are some of the things that, that led to me feeling a little bit betrayed by the church I loved and tried to be a constructive force for good from within. Well, not that they'll listen, but do you have any advice for the church now if, they're, if they are listening? Um, when I met with Elder Holland... I almost declined to meet with him because my brother was working for church headquarters at the time. He, he was the head of it for all the church. He had a, he was on a first name basis with the first presidency of the quorum of the 12. Joel ushered in the internet, ushered the church into the modern internet age, all the social media stuff that the church started doing, whether it's 
Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or YouTube, my brother would have either built the foundation for that, made the arguments to the church leaders, or literally managed that migration. And I'm really proud of my brother for all the efforts that he did there. He did that in the church while I'm doing Mormon stories. Um, and, you know, there was a real firewall between us. He was faithful, progressive, believing. I was where I was. He was trying to help from within. I was working from without, still within a little bit. And then he would never, ever disclose any, violate any confidentialities or disclose anything. But he... And he didn't like, I, I sensed that he always wished I wasn't doing what he was, what I was doing. Cause I think it was embarrassing for him. Cause we shared a last name and you know, his family didn't like it. And I'm sure he got questions from the brethren, but he was literally the head of it and com computers for the Mormon church. While I'm the most prominent, you could say critic of the church that was all happening. And we paralleled, you know, five, seven years in that sort of strained, but loving connected relationship. So um, because he was friends with, with Bednar and Holland and everybody, and because I had a relationship with Holland from, you know, we had played tennis, I dated his daughter, you know, at some point Holland's like, let me meet with John, you know? And so Joel set up two lunches with Elder Holland. It was at a private restaurant. You know how like at the top of the Joseph Smith building, there's those two restaurants, one outdoors and one indoors. It was at the indoors one, and, and it was lunch. On the on the top of the, like, yeah. the 10th floor or whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. And it was for lunch, so, and he had, like, the whole, the whole restaurant was empty. It was almost like a Godfather moment. The whole restaurant was empty, except for me and my brother and Elder Holland with a private server, right? Both, wow. both times we met, it was there. And, but when Joel reached out to me at first about meeting with Elder Holland, I was like, ah, oh. I was excited. I'm like, wow, this is a dream come true. Like I can actually meet with a prophet, seer, and revelator, express my needs, give him some ideas, and help him. But there was one huge problem. I didn't want to embarrass my brother. Two huge problems. I didn't want to embarrass my brother by being too hard on Holland, you know? And I only wanted to meet with him if I had good ideas because I didn't want to just be a complainer, Right. So I spent weeks and weeks and weeks thinking about, I know Holland's going to say, what should I do? I'm pretty sure Holland's not going to know what to do because I don't even know how much he knows about the problems with the church. Because at that point, there were big questions about whether the brethren even knew about the challenges to the truth claims or the historical problems. The general consensus was they're, they're as old and dumb and as clueless as anybody in the church, other than maybe a few exceptions. So like, I didn't even know if he knew the problems. So the, the challenge I set for myself was I only want to go if I can provide constructive suggestions that wouldn't harm the church because that would be dumb for me to go apologize for your past racism, Elder Holland, and give women the priesthood and come clean with all your historical problems and be honest about it. Like, no, they're never going to do that. And they're going to think you're dumb and maybe even question your integrity or your loyalty if you were to make recommendations like that. So I'm sitting there thinking, well, what's a recommendation that I can make that won't reduce tithing and won't reduce the butts and seats. And that is 
in any way feasible. And to this day, Rick Bennett, I don't know that I ever have been able to come up with a good recommendation. How to fix the racism problem, how to fix the sexism, misogyny problem, how to fix the LGBT problem, how to fix the transparency and the truth claims problem without meaningfully harming the church. Because all of those things, all of those things, the bedrock and the foundation of all those problems was laid by prophets, seers, and revelators who claimed to speak to God. Whether it's the priesthood ban or the women not having the priesthood or homosexuality, according to Spencer W. Kimball, being an abomination or all the, you know, the September 6th excommunications or, you know, the disbanding of the Leonard Arrington administration. All that was done by prophets, seers, and revelators. So as soon as they apologize for or backtrack on any of that stuff, they're undermining their own prophetic authority as being led by God. So how do they walk any of that back without the church members saying, you're an, either A, you're an apostasy, which is the whole Denver snuffer crowd, right? Mm-hmm. Either if you make changes, you're an apostasy, and we're going we're gonna to go fundamentalist and start the FLDS, like start FD, FLDS branches, or, uh, you know, oh, you're just making all this up. You're not really, this is not really the one true church. You're not really speaking for God. You're making this up. We're going to leave. Like, they, it's a lose-lose. They lose in every direction if they make any of these meaningful changes. So I was paralyzed not knowing what recommendations I would give to Elder Holland. And I'd been somewhat stunned trying to talk to Marlon Jensen. He kept asking me, what should we do? What should we do? And I like stuttered because I, I wanted to give a recommendation in good faith. And I could not think of a solution that would not lead to a mass defection of membership and a mass decrease of tithing, which I knew was going to be, those were going to be the, the three, th- four things that are most sacred to the church. Tithing, right? Membership attendance, priesthood authority, and PR. For sure, those are the most sacred things to the church. And, you know, so I did meet with Elder Holland, and I had, I, all, I, all I said, all I asked him in that first meeting, listened to him talk about the problems in Chile with the missionary program. I, we talked about evolution, and he said, you can believe in evolution and still be a faithful member. You didn't have to choose. Uh, we talked about conversion therapy and how he wasn't sure what Dean Bird was doing was very good, you know, but at the very, very end, he talked about how hard it was to be an apostle, how hard it was to lead the church, how hard it was with the mid-level management bureaucracy to keep them all in line. You know, he talked about how when you're a junior apostle, how limited you are and how everything's run by unanimity anyway. And so it takes forever to make a change. He acknowledged all that stuff. President Nelson's making changes. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty quickly. By fiat. But I think he he broke... He broke tradition by acting without consensus. I mean, that that whole November 15 policy, by all accounts, was a move without unanimity in the quorum mm-hmm. that caused a lot of problems. So you were kidding, but now I, I get serious way too quick. <laughs> so funny. anyway, so like all I, all I asked Elder Holland in that first meeting was, do you want people like us in the church? That's the best I could offer. 
Didn't even give a suggestion. I just said, do you want people like me in the church? And he was just so emphatic. It's almost like he was lifted out of his chair and he like pounded on the table. We want people like you in the church. We need people like you in this church. And he actually said, I want 100,000 John and Joel DeLins in this church. That's what he said. Um, and that made me feel great, you know? Made me feel amazing. Like, whoa, he listened to me and he cares and he's gonna do something about this. And, and then like the very next general conference, he gives his Book of Mormon, famous Book of Mormon talk as, by, by my memory which was, you you, have, you know, to leave this church, you have to crawl under, over, around the Book of Mormon. And I'm just like, were you just punking me? Were you just like glad-handing me? Like, how can you give that talk after telling me you want people in this church? Because he was basically mocking and trivializing people's concerns about the Book of Mormon and its historicity. I still met with them a second time. The only recommendation I had was to make a statement in general conference Telling not telling believing spouses not to divorce their believing spouses when they lost their faith. And long story short, when I asked him to make a statement like that in general conference, he said, we can't tell people what to do in their marriage, is what he said. And then I said, well, so like marriages are blowing up, families are blowing up. Can you do something? And he was like, here's what, here's what I'll tell you. Tell people, I give you permission to tell people that you've traversed the headquarters of the church and from the many conversations you've had from pe with people, unnamed people, I've gleaned that. And then you can tell them that, that within church headquarters, there's support for not divorcing your spouse just for leaving, losing their faith. But don't use my name. Yeah, don't use my name. And I was like, but Elder Holland, like, nobody's going to listen to me. I'm just a podcaster. Like, they need... They need like an apostle to say that over the pulpit. And that's when he said to me, and this makes my mixed, mixed faith marriage friends really angry. He said, maybe when the church is a little more mature, we'll be able to make statements like that over the pulpit, but not now. And that was the last time I met with him. And of course I left really disappointed because I'm like, you're a prophet of God. You know, marriages are blowing up and you're saying that you have to, wait until the time is right to give a talk that you know needs to be given. But, and boy, K. Packer was still alive at that point. So I get why he would have been afraid to give a talk like that. I don't even, you know, they've tried to make amends since then, but I was just not impressed with his lack of courage. Like it just seemed like another, it seemed like Congress, like you remember how I like got disillusioned with Congress when I worked for Congress it felt like a, just a religious version of, of the Senate where you like are really working with humans in a secular way, backroom deals, coalition building, not led by God, not led by courageous people who follow the spirit and their conviction, just more managing your capital. And it was then that I knew that the, no, no one's going to save us. Uchtdorf's not going to save us. Holland's not going to save us. None of them are going to save us. Remember when we thought when Boy K. Packer dies, the church is going to have a renaissance? And then freaking Oaks became the bad guy, and Holland became the bad guy, and Bednar became the bad guy. You know, and of course, Holland with his muskets talk at BYU, and they're, they're, they've all been a massive disappointment. And uh, yeah, 
and so that was a real moment of disillusionment. It was really a Dorothy going to Oz, seeing behind the curtain, meeting the wizard kind of moment where you just realize these dudes are just saying whatever they can say to make you feel good. They don't have an real integrity. They don't have real honesty and they're not led by, if there's a God, they're not led by him because they're kind of cowards and they're a lot, they have blood on their hands, allowing the deaths and the marital destructions and the family disillusions and the, just the deception of generations of members. They know, they know, and they're just choosing not to really act in a way that shows integrity and the character that, frankly, the church taught me. Sorry, Elder Holland. I'm sure you mean well. All right. Well, I think I'm running out of questions. The last one I kind of wanted to run by you. Um, do you ever see yourself... Uh, you know, I know Maxine Hanks has come back. Uh, Abraham Gilead has come back. Do you ever see yourself ever coming back and in, into the LDS church? Um, uh, there's the theoretical answer and the practical answer. The practical answer is probably no. It's definitely no. Only because I don't think what I'm about to say is ever possible, right? But the truth is, People think that, you know, I've been called a wolf in sheep's clothing from the very beginning, right? <laughs> we never did answer that question, by the way. Okay, are you, just ask it, ask it. Are you a wolf in sheep's clothing? Okay. So or were you, especially in the early days of Mormon yeah. stories? No, thanks for asking. So there was an ethical dilemma that I was navigating because I had concluded by 2001 that the church was not what it claimed to be that it was not the one true church with exclusive authority, that the Book of Mormon wasn't historical, that the Book of Abraham wasn't historical. I've already told you, and I've people know, I've been public about my faith crisis in 2001 from the start, right? Um, so I don't think I've been deceiving anybody about how I felt about the church's truth claims. I think you'd have a hard time ever finding me saying, I know the Book of Mormon is, is, script, you know, is like a historical document I know God lives. I know that Jesus, you'll, you'll never hear me say that from Mormon stories inception until now. You'll never hear me say it's the one true church with exclusive authority. So I would be deceptive if I were saying those things and trying to, but not believing them and then trying to take people out of the church. That would be unethical. That would be dishonest, but I've never done that. Now, what I did do is I started Mormon stories as a leap of faith with a inspired by Lowell Benyon, Eugene England, uh, T. Edgar Lyon, Phil Barlow, Richard Bushman, a thoughtful faith. I felt like, and, and frankly, inspired by a progressive Judaism, reform Judaism, where you could have a form of Judaism where you didn't have to believe that the founder of your church, Moses, necessarily even existed. You could still have the ritual, still have the tradition, still have the spirituality, but take the scriptures more as myth. That's how most world religions are these days in the developed world. So I just I just thought maybe we could help Mormonism move in that direction without a schism. But I didn't see that as deceptive to try and build a progressive 
Like Elder Holland had told me, we want a big tent. We want a big umbrella. He had told me that. He told me that. So I didn't think it was deceptive to start a podcast to try and build a, a big tent within Mormonism that was tolerant of all shades of belief and non-belief and all shades of orthodoxy. It had been done in other churches. I had been inspired by all the all the progressive Mormons from Sunstone and Dialogue that meant well. And that was my intention. And absolutely my intention for many, many years was to keep people in the church. And that's why I started StayLDS.com. And that's why I supported it. And that's why I still support it to this day. Because I do believe to this day, I don't think you will ever be able to find anyone I've ever counseled. And by now, I've counseled over 20,000 people for sure. Interacted with over 20,000 people, whether through chats, comments, email, phone calls, coaching, conferences, retreats, well over 20,000 people. I don't think you'll ever be able to find anyone who's ever said that I've told them to leave the church or even recommended that they leave the church. I don't think you'll ever find it. If you can find it, I, I, I welcome. I welcome you finding anyone. You can find anyone to say anything these days. But I literally don't think I've ever told anyone to leave the church. I don't think I've ever recommended it. And I don't think I've ever desired it for people with maybe one big exception. Once I realized that people were killing them, gay, gay and lesbian and transgender people were killing themselves in the church, once I saw the data, I realized that for many people, being LGBT just wasn't safe. So I, I, I would never outright tell an LGBTQ person to leave the church, but like I would show my research that, that like it, it was deadly for a lot of people. And I would say, you know what, leaving the church is a viable option for many. Two thirds of the LGBT people I surveyed had left the church trying to stay celibate, trying to be in a mixed, or, mixed orientation marriage, trying to stay faithful in the church was literally deadly to many, many people. So I would certainly explore that as an option with people uh, when I knew that their lives were on the line, right? But even then I wouldn't say leave the church because that's unethical. It's unethical and it's counterproductive to tell someone to leave the church. That's what, again, like Neil, you know, like apologists and critics of mine will say, well, John's a wolf in sheep clothing wanted taking people, wanting to take people out of the church. I don't believe that's ethical or possible. So ethical, why do I not think it's ethical to intentionally try and force people to leave the church? Because you don't know what's going to happen in their lives when they do, right? Um, sometimes their marriage explodes. Sometimes they get addicted to alcohol. Sometimes their life is worse leaving the church than uh, when they're in it. And I, I experienced that the two times I left before I was kicked out. And I've seen friends develop alcoholism or drug addiction or get divorced or experiment in ways that were unhealthy. And to this day, I don't think secular secularism has figured out how to create community and identity and meaning and purpose and spirituality um, in a secular way, in a way that religion has been so successful. So I'm not, I don't want people to, ruin their lives. And, uh, and, and so in that sense, I think it's unethical to like actively try and persuade people to leave the church. And also it, you know, for my psychology training, 
as a psychologist, you don't tell people what to do ever. Psychologists are trained to never tell people what to do. You're trained to ask questions, to develop insight and to help people figure out what's right for them. But it's literally unethical to impose your values on other people as a psychologist. So for all those reasons, I've never been motivated to take people out of the church. And to this day, I think that's true. And I stand by that. And I invite you or anyone to claim, make a substantive claim, provide an email, provide a text where I've like said, you should leave the church. Now, having said that, I have become angry and frustrated with the way the church leaders have, have harmed vulnerable minorities and have been dishonest about its history and has punished truth tellers. So you will find many instances where I express that frustration or anger or, you know, I'm, yeah. So you'll find stuff like that. Um, although I've tried to moderate my tone as much as possible, but yeah, I've lost my patience with the church and its leadership sometimes. And, and maybe have even been, I, I'm never like happy when the church makes mistakes or causes problems or harms people. But like at some point I'm like, you laugh instead of cry. And you, you kind of just say, yeah, this is what they do. And at some point you come to expect it. And then you just kind of make a joke out of it because like, what else are you going to do? But just get depressed and cry all the time. And so sometimes, you know, I had Cara Burrell on for a while and her tone, her comedic tone was of sarcasm was off putting. I've strayed in my tone and gone back and forth. And I have John Larson on now that swears and, you know, but, but generally speaking, I don't think it's moral or ethical to intentionally try and take people out of the church. But the second thing is I don't think it's effective. There's something called the backfire effect, which is that when you, when you try and persuade someone with evidence against their closely held religious or political uh, beliefs or identity, you actually literally created in them the opposite effect, like a ricochet effect, where they actually hold tighter to their beliefs um, once you're challenging them directly. So in that sense, I don't think it's even effective to say, your church is dumb, your beliefs are dumb, you're evil, your church is evil, get out of it now. I think that actually strengthens beliefs, not weakens them. So um, so what has been my motivation in Mormon stories? The best way to summarize it is in two words. Well, four words. Informed consent and social justice. Social justice. Church, stop hurting LGBT people. I'm going to do whatever I can to show you that you're killing LGBT people, harming LGBT people, and the straight spouses that marry LGBT people, and kids, all the suicides. That's what my dissertation was about. That's why for so many years I interviewed LGBT people on Mormon stories and still do. Racism. Church has got to fix that. Fix the Book of Mormon and its racist teachings about black skin being a curse for wickedness to make Lamanites loathsome so that the Nephites who are white won't be enticed to intermarry with them. Racism. Stop it. Get rid of that. Book of Abraham, Book of Moses, dark skin curse going back to Adam. Cain, get rid of that. Denounce it. That's evil, right? Misogyny, sexism. Give women the priesthood. Let them be full members. 
Yeah, that's obviously wrong by all standards. So like, and, and people who doubt and question, stop stigmatizing them. Stop the false judgments. Stop the um, false stereotypes. Let's get rid of the destruction of families and of marriages just because someone loses their faith. So like social justice, all that stuff has been really important to me. And I think you can see that from 2005 on and everything I've ever done is stop the harm and the bigotry. That's been a big motivation. Is that a wolf in sheep's clothing? Yes and no. No, because none of that has anything to do with me trying to take people out of the church. I can see why people would call me a wolf in sheep's clothing, because if the church gave women the priesthood, apologized for its racism, changed the changed the scriptures to take out the racism, gave LGBT people the priesthood, let them marry in the temple, uh, accepted same-sex love, supported same-sex marriage, apologized for its lies with its history, and and openly taught the church's history to all members in an overt uh, way, the church will become community of Christ and lose two-thirds of their members. So yes, the things I've been advocating for would harm the church, probably. Not financially, because the church has more money than God at this point and can live off the interest, doesn't need tithing anymore, like Scientology. But it would certainly harm the church. So yes, all the things I've been advocating for would harm the church. And in that way, if someone wanted to claim I was a wolf in sheep's clothing, they could. it's true that the things I've been advocating for would be harmful for the church. In that way, they could say I was trying to destroy the church. But that's not on me. I didn't marry 14-year-olds. I didn't, I didn't lie about Joseph Smith's history. I didn't lie about the translation of the Book of Mormon or the, or the Book of Abraham. Uh, I, didn't, uh, I, wasn't, I didn't say the racist things Brigham Young said. I didn't, um, I didn't propose that women not receive the priesthood. I didn't create a Masonic ceremony that stole Masonic rituals and then change it later. I didn't excommunicate all the dissidents. That's all on Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and the church. So any of people leaving over any of the recommendations that I've made to change or any changes that the church makes in response to the things I and others have done, that's on Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham and the Journal of Discourses and Brigham Young and all the church leaders from then to now that have lied consciously and, and, and hidden things and punish the truth tellers. That's not on me. Okay. So no, I don't think I qualify for wolf in sheep's clothing for that. The other is, is, you know, do I, did I know that people's exposure to the history and the social justice stuff, did I know that that would probably cause some to lose their faith? And I had to confront that really early on because, as I told you, the two times I stopped Mormon stories, it was because I realized that exposure to the truth, truthful history, and the social justice issues did lead to people leaving. And for a long time after I quit, people were like, John, that's not on you. If people learn about polyandry or peepstones or the stone in the hat or the mason stuff and the, and the Pele L you know, and the throat slitting in the temple ceremony. If people learn about that through you, 
that's the church being dishonest. That's not your fault for just speaking openly about the facts. It's the church's fault for not being transparent and punishing the truth tellers. And it's not your fault for the consequences of people learning the truth about the church and thinking more critically about it. And so, um, and 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 so the in, in in addition to social justice, the other two words that have always driven my work is informed consent, which is that people deserve to know what they're joining or giving their lives to, and it's fun. And, and because of the stakes of a high demand religion like Mormonism, you give you give ten percent of your income for life, you give two year mission service you get indoctrinated, you pledge eternal devotion to the church. The church determines when you get married, how you get married, who you marry to, how many children you have, what careers you pursue or don't pursue. And this is way more severe for women than for men in the church. Given the massive stakes of active, devout, orthodox Mormonism, you deserve to know the accurate church history and the way the church has harmed people. And it's fundamentally unethical and deceptive and dishonest and harmful to hide that information from people, given the stakes of membership, the claims of absolute truth and of exclusive authority and the, the, and the, the stakes and the cost of full Orthodox active devout membership. People deserve to know. So yes, I'm, I have always been and am about informed consent, but does that make me a wolf in sheep's clothing? No. If I had a magic wand and I've told people this since the beginning, if I had a magic wand, what I would do is I would wave it. And for everyone who wanted to know the truth about the church, or would be irreparably harmed from membership, they would learn about Mormon stories. They would learn Rough Stone Rolling, read Rough Stone Rolling. They would find out about the CES letter. And for those who wanted to know, who would be benefited from either becoming more progressive or liberal or from leaving, I would want them to know, right? But if I could wave a magic wand and anyone who wouldn't want to know because it would harm them to know, right? Or if I even knew that they would have an inferior life by losing their faith and leaving, why would I want them to leave? Yes, I'd rather people have a life built on um, a false understanding of the world and of truth. I'd rather them have a happier, healthier life living within a false belief system than have an inferior life outside of it. The problem is I can't control who listens to my podcast, who stumbles on it. I can't do that. So the best I can do is speak the truth on the podcast, interview believers and non-believers, try and discuss the issues as fair as possible, and then let people use their free agency to figure stuff out. So I don't know. I don't think that makes me a wolf in sheep's clothing. But I can see why people would claim that because simply learning the truth about the church or becoming gay or becoming a feminist or becoming sensitive to racial issues 
or becoming super educated, just exposure to those things, in my view, is highly correlated with disaffection. And the church continues to resist change in those areas. So I don't think I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's never been my desire to take people out of the church. But I've known from the beginning um, that there was that risk. And in effect, that's what's happened for hundreds of thousands at this point. But I don't think that's on me. I think that's on Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and all the leaders from then to now that have encouraged and supported the bigotry and have deceived the members knowingly and openly about the church's history and about the church's truth claims. I think it's on them. I think they're the wolves in sheep's clothing for people's health and for the truth. I think I've been a thousand times more honest and open about the church's history than the church has been. And I think for the social justice causes I care about, I think I've helped move the needle much more than the church has. And honestly, I think me, along with Sunstone Dialogue, the Mormon History Association, Journal of Mormon History, all the other podcasts, Bill Reel, um, Radio Free Mormon, uh, John Larson, Mormon Expression, Gospel Tangents, you know, Mormon Book Reviews, Year of Polygamy, I think all of us together um, have really helped change the church over time. And you wouldn't see the progress that the church has made without uh, the Tanners and and Eugene England and Dialogue and Leonard Arrington and Lowell Bennion and the September 6th and, and um, you know, uh, Feminist Mormon Housewives. And, you know, so I'm proud to stand with all those heroes, including Juanita Brooks and Fawn Brody and the Tanners and others. I'm proud to stand with them as people who have helped the church improve. And there was some point where I'm like, oh my gosh, I just realized that the main thing that I do is, is help the church realize where it's in error and help the church change. As I've watched the church change in response to the efforts of me and many other people. I mean, whether it's Sam Young stuff or the gospel topics essays or the church's progression on LGBT issues or even supportive people in faith crisis. It's all happened in the past 15, 17 years. Church knew all these things before. What's different? The internet. You know what I mean? So I've had to come to terms with the fact that in effect, what I'm doing is helping the church change as they punish me and malign me and smear me and in some sense try and harm me and my family. But I still love the Mormon people. And ironically, I still love the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm grateful for the influence that it's had in my life. I think it's a net positive influence. I feel fortunate to have been born into this church and to have been raised in the church. I feel like it's been good for me. I feel like it's helped a lot of people. I may even believe that it's done more good than harm in the world. I want it to be happy and healthy and successful. And I want it to just get better and do better. So I still love Mormons. I still love the church. I just want to see it improve and harm less people. And that is my uh, Heavenly Father's honest truth. I say, raising my right hand to the square. Forever and ever, amen. Do you think, especially since 2015, um, that 
Mormon stories is is a fair representation of Mormonism. Is it neutral? Uh, no, no, not neutral. Um, I th- I think you and Steve Pinegar do a better job at neutrality than I do. I worked really hard to be neutral for a long time. Yeah, and I've already told you that I think the skewing of Mormon stories is more at the hands of the church excommunicating me and the church um, with Proposition 8 harming and, and spiking, you know, tripling the suicide rates of, of LGBT youth in Utah and puni- punishing the ordained women movement and excommunicating me and others and, uh, you know, refusing to be honest and open and then excommunicating me, which then made more faithful people afraid or unwilling to come on the podcast. I lay the skewing of Mormon stories primarily to that and to the uncourageous neo-apologists who stopped being willing to be courageous and stopped being willing to come on Mormon stories out of fear, out of a desire to manage their capital or out of a fear of what might happen if they do come on Mormon stories. I lay the skewing of Mormon stories primarily on those two groups of people. Um, But yeah, when you see so much divorce, so much destroyed families, so much LGBT suicide, so many people's lives be um, controlled with undue influence under false pretenses, you get angry after a while. And it's hard to bite your tongue forever unless you're just truly unempathetic. Like if you lack empathy, then you can just be calloused and never get angry and upset. Or if you have extraordinarily character and discipline, and maybe that's you, or maybe you just haven't been doing this long enough, or maybe you just haven't talked to enough, maybe you just haven't seen enough suffering. Maybe you, Rick Bennett, have cocooned yourself from the suffering that I've seen, or people don't reach out to you like they did to me. But I don't know how anybody can face the carnage that the Mormon church has wreaked in the lives of its members, in addition to the good stuff, how they can face that for 10 or 20 years and not get angry. I think angry is the healthy, mature, rational response. So I appreciate how academics has to remain neutral and that that's an important part of the discipline. So I respect you and the Bushmans and Thomas Murphy and you know all the academics who are able to remain neutral. I have... I have deep respect for the discipline and the character that sometimes is required to do that. But even them, I don't know how they can see the deception and see the carnage and remain neutral emotionally. Um, so, uh, no Mormon story. Well, Mormon stories pre 2015, I think has been one of the most neutral outlets ever. I would agree for for discussing these sorts of issues. I think Dialogue and Sunstone have done some amazing work in that area. I think Journal Mormon History has done some good work. John Whitmer. Like, you know, there are others that I, I look to as as inspirations. But as far as podcasts go, I'm really proud, even to this day, of the neutrality because I'll still have believers on. And I'll I'll interview people from all... I would love to sit down with you for four hours and ask you how you still believe and help provide you as a model for belief. But I still have Christians on, believers on, um, non-believers on. I try to be as neutral and as uh, 
balanced as I can. And I still have many, 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 many people tell me, thank you for your neutrality, John DeLynn, for your balanced approach with Mormon stories in 2022, because that neutrality helped me. You know, I still have bishops and stake presidents and, and CES employees who listen to Mormon stories regularly and faithfully. So I must be doing something right in terms of my tone to have believing members still tuning in. Um, but no, it's not, it's not, um, it's not, what did you say? Neutral? Neutral, yeah. And I, I don't know how anyone can be neutral in face of all the dishonesty and suffering that, that has been out there. But I still try my best. I've fallen a lot. I admire you, Gospel Tangents, so everyone should should watch everything Rick Bennett has ever produced and donate to him, by the way. How do people donate to you? I don't want to sidetrack us, but how do they donate? Just go to my website. I've, I've, I've actually Tangents. upgraded my website. Gospel so. Tangents what? Dot com. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to end the interview yet, but go to gospeltangents.com and donate. Also support Stephen Peiniger and uh, Mormon Book Review. But um, I admire your neutrality. I strive for neutrality and I fail often. So the, <laughs> that's a long, long way of saying no, but I'm... I'm I'm still proud of what I've done, and I'm still trying. Well, and I just <laughs> I hate to bring this up because it brings up the a stereotype, but I, I would like you to address the stereotype. Um, you know, there's the stereotype of the bitter, angry ex Mormon. Um, I I'm trying to break down those walls, but <laughs> you know. There was a discussion recently on Facebook. I know you saw about whether um, whether the Mormon Stories Facebook group is um, accepting of believers, and uh, I know there are many believers that feel it is not. Um, and I know you took issue with that. Can you address that issue? Yeah. So the the Mormon Stories podcast Facebook group. Does it have like 17,000 people in it? Like it's massive. And, you know, just ask Jerry Renshaw of the A Thoughtful Faith Group, which is now Waters of Mormon, which I started. You know, it is impossible. It is nearly impossible to create an internet forum where believers and non-believers all feel welcome and respected. I mean, it's literally like up there with like harder than... Well, it's kind of what you did with Mormon Matters. And it, it seems like that kind of... Blew up too, and yeah, it's it's literally harder than than landing on the moon to create an internet forum where believers and non-believers all feel welcome. And so, for a gazillion years, I tried to moderate the Mormon Stories podcast Facebook community to be safe for all, and you couldn't do it. Either you made because when people are in faith crisis, they're angry, they're emotional, and they need a place to vent. So if if you just do that then believers are un uncomfortable or sometimes just talking about the truth claims in a balanced way causes believers to feel uncomfortable. But then if you tell all the people in trauma, all the people that are in faith crisis, chill out, be careful, be, be, you know, be kind, be nice. They feel shut up. They feel muzzled. They're triggered. That's how the church treated me. And so they want to leave or feel silenced and uncomfortable. So you can't tone police the disaffected. But then when believers come on and and they're preachy and try and bear their testimonies or they advance the stereotypes and 
and launch criticisms of the people. Oh, you just wanted to sin or you're, you're just bitter and angry. You're, you know, you, you just uh, leave the church, but you can't leave it alone, you know, or they bear their testimony, just have more faith. Like that's super triggering and offensive to the non-believers. And, you know, so like, it, but if you try and tone police them, then they say, well, you're not, you're not safe and, and hospitable to belief. So I gave up on that a long, long time ago. I created both Stale to Yes and A Thoughtful Faith, which is a possible podcast I supported with, uh, with Micah Nicolaisen and, and um, Gina before Gina Colvin, there was another person that helped with that. But I created Thoughtful Faith and said, okay, I've lost the battle of trying to Tone Police, Mormon Stories podcast community. So I'll create a Thoughtful Faith podcast, stayLDS.com, and the A Thoughtful Faith Facebook group, which is more for faithful. And then if like you couldn't do Mormon Stories, go to Thoughtful Faith. When you lost your faith after being in a Thoughtful Faith, you come to Mormon Stories. And I did that for many, many years until Geraldine Rensaw kicked me out, basically, and uh, kicked me out of that group that I uh, helped start, um, which made me sad. But uh, I get why I was excommunicated by that point. People didn't feel comfortable being there in there with me in there. But so it's just impossible. So, so I have a bunch of volunteer moderators who moderate the Mormon Stories podcast community. They don't get paid, and they just do the best job that they can. We put up a bunch of guidelines. I banned I banned way more angry ex Mormons from that Facebook group than I have, you know, insufferable believers. But it's just impossible, and I've given up, and I just try and support my mods, and we just do the best that we can. But, you know, I've had parents and other people say, man, John, Mormon Stories is fine, but your your Facebook commenters or your Facebook group is, like, is awful. It's toxic. And all I can say is it's, it's, it's traumatic to be raised in a high-demand religion, and it's traumatic to leave it, and the church has made that worse. And so that causes trauma responses that uh, that are just very difficult to manage and that are understandable and probably healthy on some level. So we just need to have lots of spaces. That's why I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Well, thanks. All right. Well, um, we, we started this and say, would John ever come back to the church? And then we got on to the Wolf and Sheep's Schools thing. So let's go back to that question. Okay. Would you ever come back? So I am sorry I ramble. And, no, that's and fine. Take... Well, this is gospel tangents, and we do tangents, so it's fine. Okay. <laughs> so probably not, because I don't think the church would ever change in the ways that— I don't think the church is capable of changing in the ways I would want it or need it to change. Do you want me to list all the things the church would need to change? Well, you already did. Okay. We, we went through that. So— um, Short of like that, then no, I I wouldn't I I wouldn't feel like the church would be like I have several LGBT children. Mar Margie identifies as non, you know, non heteronormative in some ways. Like just that alone, as long as the church is homophobic, I would be betraying my own spouse and children to be a part of a church that that's homophobic. And I know people may not like me saying that, but like if if you if you can't, if the church is like excommunicating people for getting legally same-sex married, what do you call that? If the church teaches that who you love is evil and wrong or sinful, I don't know what else to call that than homophobic. So just that alone, transgender issues, like being opposed to social, you know, gender transitions uh, um, and discriminating against people for 
transitioning in ways where the medical community is in full support of those transitions, just that alone. Um, so that that's going to make it so I can't be a member. But I miss it. I love it. Really? I, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I miss a lot about it. Because I've seen you post about, oh, how, you know, there's life after excommunication. It's great. I love my life. Yeah, let me explain that. So, so first of all, a lot of my unwillingness to leave the church turned out to be learned helplessness or conditioning. Why did I believe? Why was I fearful that I couldn't raise healthy kids outside of Mormonism? Because I was taught by the Mormon church that you can't raise healthy, happy kids outside of Mormonism. I was taught that. I was taught that non-Mormons are inferior spiritually and righteously compared to Orthodox believing Mormons. We always looked down on non-members, always. And we always looked at it as a, as a, as a Mormon, it was always the wrong decision to leave the church and you most likely would fall prey to sin. So, so that's how Mormons are conditioned. That's how I was conditioned. And that's why for so long I was afraid to ever leave. And that's why I was, you know, um, afraid both for myself and for my kids that I couldn't be moral that I couldn't be faithful to my spouse without, uh, leaving the church without staying the, with leaving the church. And ironically, I feel like I'm more honest and faithful to Margie now than I was when I was in. And I feel like my kids are healthier now than they were when they were in. But it's been a struggle. And um, and most importantly, for people who have been taught to fear leaving and that they will only trade down and, and experience misery when they leave, they need reasons to believe that they can find healing and growth afterwards. So a big part of Thrive, the Thrive Initiative, and a big part of what I've tried to do with all the faith crisis interviews that I do is to show people through stories that you can have a healthier marriage, better mental health, be a better parent, be happier and healthier than when you were in the church. And I do believe that. I do believe that for many their happiness and health, their de their depression decreases, their anxiety decreases, their marriage improves, and their parenting improves after they leave the church. Sometimes their integrity improves after they leave the church. That's not everybody, but that's the majority of the people that I have interacted with, and by this point it's tens of thousands, that's the majority of the people that I've interacted with after, after they've left. Almost no one has ever said, I wish I hadn't left. Almost no one in tens of thousands of people that I've interacted with. Now, do they sometimes become alcoholic or addicted to drugs or cheat on their spouse or have kids die by suicide or themselves die by suicide? Or No, leaving the church is not a magic bullet, right? They're suffering. Buddhism teaches us that they're suffering everywhere. But guess what? There's divorce in the church. There's suicide in the church. There's depression and anxiety and eating disorders in the church. So you can't really judge by, by an unfair standard. And we all know that Utah, by many reports, leads in many national indicators in things like depression, anxiety, suicidality, prescription drug abuse, and even drug abuse and pornography abuse. So like what I want people to know is they aren't trapped. They aren't helpless. And there is hope. That's why I created the podcast, The Gift of the Mormon Faith Crisis. There is hope after Mormon orthodoxy. There is healing and growth. And the majority of people 
who leave the Mormon church, particularly over issues of, of, of truth claims or social justice, the vast majority of them report being healthier and happier afterwards. But before me, who said that? Find, what? <laughs> Sandra Tanner. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Like maybe, but like even Sandra and Gerald Tanner, they focused on the truth claims. They weren't talking about faith crisis. They weren't talking about how hard it is to go through a faith crisis. They weren't trying to provide support for marriages and faith crisis or for, you know what I mean? Like that mm -hmm. before 2005, I don't know that that was really a thing talking about faith crisis, talking about the difficulties of a faith crisis, and trying to be a solution to people in faith crisis. Frankly, that's why I started doing what I was doing, because I found nothing out there that was really trying to address that. Sunstone, you don't see a ton of articles about prior to 2015. You wouldn't see a bunch of dialogue or Sunstone articles about, man, man, I'm having a hard time with my faith. Man, my marriage is hard. Oh, I'm, I'm gay, celibate in a mixed orientation marriage. How do we fix this marriage? Like, I don't think there wasn't much in the Mormon discourse, academic or not, about that sort of stuff. That's literally why I left Microsoft and $200,000 a year with stock options to try and help solve that problem. And so, yeah, why do I try and help Mormons know that there's healing and growth after Mormon orthodoxy? Well, one, because there is, and two, because they've been conditioned to believe that they should fear leaving. But that you know you know what causes I had a I had a psychiat psychiatry friend I won't re reveal his name but you know what he said to me once he said you know what leads to suicide John and I'm like I don't know I have a PhD in psychology but tell me what you know and he said something to me that I had never really fully grasped before he said do you know what causes suicide do you know Rick no do you know do you know what causes suicide depression huh <laughs> depression but you, but but lots of people are depressed. What causes people to kill themselves? I'm, I, I'm not a psychologist. I have no idea. The answer is feeling trapped. Feeling like there's no way out. You're sandwiched between two things, you know, like your marriage and your kids and your wife or being authentically gay, right? Your belief in the, you know, your, your, your membership in the church and your standing in the community and your marriage and your kids and your reputation or your integrity where you've discovered that it isn't true, right? Your job that provides an income for everyone, your kids, your wife, everyone, and your integrity that no longer is the church is true and you're dying because the church is killing you and you can't be honest about it. It's being trapped with no options that makes people want to die. My parents... I want my parents to love and respect me, but I've lost my faith or I'm gay. And if I, if I come out, if I leave the church, say I don't believe, quit my mission, leave the church, my parents won't love me anymore, they'll disinherit me, and I'll be socially ostracized. It's being trapped that makes you want to die. So why do I, why do I advocate for healing and growth outside of Mormon orthodoxy or Mormonism? So that people know they have a choice. But you still miss it. I miss parts of it. Parts I don't of miss it. the temple ceremony. I don't miss the patriarchy. I don't miss how boring and tedious it can be. And I don't miss um, the closed-mindedness and the exclusivity of it all. But I miss a community. I miss, for all the stuff we've done with Thrive and Oasis, 
we haven't figured out secular community in a way that feels as good as freaking ex-Mormonism can be toxic where it's just like crabs pulling each other into a boiling vat of water, just, just like cannibalizing each other. Ex-Mormonism can be beautiful and amazing and super toxic and, and awful. Um, we've never been able to create anything to approximate the type of loving, supportive, affirming community. I mean, there's small instances of that, you know, I went and helped a friend move last weekend, you know, and I, I love that. We've delivered casseroles or raised money for people who are sick, but not in an organized way that religion and particularly Mormonism has been able to do. And yeah, I miss knowing everyone in my community where I live and being able to like go to once a week, meet with them and serve them and have them serve me. And that fellowship of getting to know people in your neighborhood and loving them and having them love you and suffering through things with them. So yeah, I miss, I miss that. Yeah. And, and we haven't figured out. And that's another reason I don't want the try. I'm not trying to destroy the church or explicitly take people out of it. Cause I don't know that we as ex Mormons or a secular people have figured out a, a, a for sure a better way. Is there a healing and growth and happiness? Yes. Is there a system that's as packaged to provide people with identity, meaning, purpose, spirituality, community, friendships, resolution about the afterlife? Is there a package that you could just drop into, live it, raise your kids in it, and like have a community and blossom from it? No. And that's why I'm not eager for the church to die. And I'm just why so I'm not like eager to pull people out of it. Um, cause I don't know of like a, a sure bet better way yet. Other than I know hundreds of thousands of people now who are happier, but that doesn't mean that the people who are in it now would be happier if they left. Maybe the people who are in it now are, know what would make them healthiest and happiness, happiest. And they stay in because they know themselves and none of us have any job at telling them what's best for them. If somebody feels like staying in is best for them or their family, they should stay. And I tell people that every day, stay. Why don't you stay? If you can stay and make it work, why would you leave? And I feel that way to this day. And I counsel people every day to stay in the church if they can, if they can do it in a way that isn't toxic to their own mental health, or to their situation that doesn't betray their integrity. Like you. Well, thanks. Well, we've been four hours. Is there anything we missed, John? That's it. We got it all. You want to talk about it? I could die now. (laughs) I've said it all. This will be the definitive interview that I point people to for everything about me. Really? they want to know about me. (laughs) But I made sure it on Mormon Stories, too. (laughs) That's fine. Yeah. But... Freaking support Gospel Tangents, donate to Rick, support his work. It's He's able to get people I will never be able to get, and he does neutrality in ways that I don't. Well, and he's smart, you know? So Rick's a good I, guy. Even though Rick doesn't like me very much, <laughs> he's a great guy. Even though sometimes he says things about me that hurt my feelings, he means well, and and he's a good guy. And support Rick Bennett and Gospel Well, let me just say, I'll I'll do a little disclaimer, because I am not a a big tent guy. (laughs) You know, I don't don't try to get non-believers and believers 
together. And and if you are an annoying orthodox person, this is not the podcast for you. And if you're an annoying ex-Mormon, my podcast is not for you. I like to be academic, and I will say, John, um, I have referred people to Mormon stories, when, especially if they're angry, because I'm like, you know what? I'm not a counselor. I don't know how to keep people in the church, um, but I, I, you know, go see John, Mormon stories. He's a counselor, and that's what he does. Um, but I'm definitely trying to stay in the middle, and uh, and I, I'm open to believers. I'm open to polygamists, you know, ex-Mormons. Like, I, I run the gamut, and I try to do it very broadly, um, but I don't put up with a lot of negative comments on either side. And, and I've banned as many Orthodox people as I do ex-Mormons. Yeah. So I will just give that disclaimer. So Yeah. Well, I respect you and the work you've done. I've prepared for episodes on Mormon Stories by watching some of your episodes. Um, and I just respect what you do and who you've got on and, and your intelligence and your ability to conduct great interviews. So it's an honor that you would bring me on your podcast, and I think you're a great guy. And I'm sorry we've had uh, conflicts in the past, personally. But let's bury the hatchet and uh, let's be friends. Let's be friends. Let's do it. Is that all right. I'm I'm totally cool with that. And I we will release this episode, and this will not be held back. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, John DeLynn. Oh, and support Stephen Pinecker and Mormon Booker Review. And of course, and uh, yeah, so uh, Steve's, a, Steve's a really good friend of mine, so <laughs> we talk all the time. So Mormon Book Reviews is awesome. So, All right. All right. Well, Dr. John DeLynn, I thank you for uh, all this wonderful time you spent here on Gospel Tangents. I really appreciate it. And I would love to have you back and I, let me grill you about how you stay in the church <laughs> and know all this stuff and still be a believer. I'm not an open book like you, John. I don't know. This, this is going to be a lot harder for me. So I again, like asking questions. I don't like answering Again, them. Rick is smarter. <laughs> again, Rick is smarter than John DeLynn, basically, is what you just said. You're smarter than me because you know that oh, full disclosure is problematic. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Take care. Mm -hmm. And thanks, everyone, for joining us on Mormon Stories. We'll see you all again soon. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. John DeLynn. John, thank you so much. I'm glad we finally got to sit down and, and sit down for a nice long interview. Thank you again for letting me use your studio and your equipment. It's definitely much better than mine and appreciate the, your help with all the technical difficulties that I had. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. In our next conversation, I'm excited to introduce a Lutheran pastor who's interested in Mormonism. His name is Willie Grills. One of the things that I really uh, enjoy studying and focusing on is, uh, you know, 19th century religion in America. Uh, Mormonism is integral to that part of American history. Um, it comes out of a very interesting time. Um, as far as the revivalism of the time, you're getting into the Second Great Awakening. And um, Mormonism is a force uh, that we have to... Uh, that we have to learn about, that we have to understand, um, not only as Americans anymore, but as far as global uh, Christianity is concerned. If you like what we're doing at Gospel Tangents, please support us. Go to gospeltangents.com and you can get full interviews as well as transcripts if you'd like those. So click here to subscribe and over here you can see some of our other great videos. Thanks again.